Well, how are we doing this morning, Adventure? Awesome, awesome. Hey, if you uh, haven't taken your seat yet, go ahead and do so. Uh, we are a very social church. Uh, that's what we love about this place. If you're new with us today, I want to say welcome. We're really glad that you're here. If you're tuning in online right now for the very first time, we're excited that you've joined us. And I know you're probably wondering, what kind of church is this? Well, if you're expecting for this church to be full of a bunch of religious people who have their lives together, just keep looking, okay, because that's not this place. I promise you that you are sitting beside somebody who has outsend you ten to one, all right? <clears throat> and so what, uh, some of you are a little offended by that. I'm, pray about it, you'll be fine, all right? Well, we're going to keep going in the series that uh, our lead pastor, Brad, kicked off a couple weeks ago called Simple. And uh, in this series, we have been walking through a book in the Bible called Philippians, which was really a letter written about 2,000 years ago by a guy named Paul. And he's in prison writing this letter, okay, to a group of Christians in the first century that had just kind of... Their lives just got complicated quickly. They had kind of forgotten what it meant to follow Jesus. And so one of the primary aims and purposes of this book that Paul leads out with is to simply simplify what it means to follow after Jesus, what it really looks like to be a follower of Jesus. And so if we're honest with ourselves, we tend to drift towards complexity as people, don't we? Organizations tend to do that, but I think we as people tend to drift towards stuff that is complicated because that's what's easy and it just happens that way at times. And if you look at uh, the past 2,000 years worth of history in the church, you would quickly realize rather often that at various points in time, it became less about Jesus and more about something else. It got complicated quick, and so the motivation may have been to elevate Jesus, but when we look at church history, we realize that certain leaders were elevated above Jesus. It became all about the building itself. It became quickly about, you know, who does what, who has power, who can control the government, and and so we've got to take a step back and ask ourselves what is right, true, and accurate. And so that's the whole kind of angle and point of, of this series. What would it look like for us to declutter what it means to follow after Jesus? And, and simple doesn't mean easy, okay? All right, complicated is not the same thing as easy. Easy isn't the same thing as clarity, okay? We're simply trying to... Look at what Jesus says is right, true, and best for our lives here in 2023 in Louisville, Kentucky. So we're going to be looking at something in Scripture today that uh, we tend to avoid a lot, and that is suffering. Suffering naturally causes us to ask the question of why, right? Why me? You know, why, why did I lose him so soon? Why did she decide to leave? Why, why the diagnosis? Why cancer? Why, why the heart attack? Why, why me right now in this moment? If we're honest with ourselves, we've asked that question a lot, and some of us, we might even be there right now. I just a couple weeks ago, I attended the visitation of uh, one of the victims who was shot and killed at the Old National Bank uh, in downtown Louisville a few weeks ago. And, and as, I, as I walked into the funeral home, one of the first people that I saw was this, this man's widow. And 
And she was sitting, she was sitting on a stool. She was just politely thanking people for being there. And she had a small smile on her face, just being very polite. And yet as I as I stood in line and as I looked, I looked at what she was going through, I had to ask myself, what why God? I mean, you, you, could have, you could have stopped what happened on Monday. Why are you allowing this, this poor, late 30-something girl go through and be a single mom now to her two young daughters? You see, just the week before, they were on spring break in Florida and were down there with friends and, and, and family and having a good time. Little did they know that their world was about to be rocked for the worse. And Little did they know on that Monday morning when their dad left, that was going to be the last time they would see him alive. Little did he know the moment the board meeting started that his life was about to end rather quickly. And if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we experience things, we go through things that just doesn't make sense. Right? So I want to be very clear up front that there are no easy answers to suffering. There are no quick fixes to what we sometimes experience in life. And uh, there's just no easy answers here. But as we're going to see today, Paul, the writer of the letter here in Philippians, he speaks about suffering from a place of suffering, which is important for us to remember. So if you have your Bibles or Bible app, I want you to go ahead and turn uh, to Philippians chapter 1. If you don't own a Bible, there are some Bibles in the back. Uh, We would love for you to have one of those. Uh, Philippians can be found in the back of the Bible, okay? It's just about four chapters long. And uh, if you have it on your iPhone, Android, or digital device, go ahead and pull it up on your app. Uh, We're going to pick up in chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Now remember, Paul is writing from a place of suffering. All right, here's what he says. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. We'll come back to that. What does the gospel really mean? Verse 13. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now let's stop right here for a second, okay? Remember, Paul is penning these words from inside a jail cell because he refused to shut up about who Jesus is and what Jesus came to accomplish. And yet, in the midst of this suffering right here, In the midst of the the suffering, he's come to a place of finding purpose by saying that his imprisonment has really caused the advancement of the gospel message. Now, if the word gospel is confusing to you, it's a a churchy word, it's kind of a religious word, and if it's foreign to you, it simply means good news, and and capital G gospel, okay, is the, the, the message, the truth that Jesus came to save us, to free us, to give us the chance to walk through life with God. All right, Jesus didn't just claim to be God. He wasn't just some Messiah that walked on earth and, you know, did some cool miracles and was very charismatic. No, he proved that he was God by predicting his death and resurrection, and then once they actually murdered him, he pulled it off. He crashed his funeral. So I'm with that guy, right? Whatever, whatever he says is right and true, if you can crash your funeral, I, I, I'm with him. And, and so Paul is saying here that, look, there's nothing that can possibly chain up 
the advancement of the gospel message. In essence, he's declaring, hey, you can bound me up, but you can't bound up the message of Jesus. He saw jail as simply an opportunity to tell the guards about what Jesus had done. You see, Paul came to this place in his life where he learned to not waste his suffering. That brings me to the first thing I want us to see about suffering, and it goes like this. Suffering becomes our platform. Suffering becomes our our platform. There's no doubt it's it's a platform that we don't seek. It's not a platform that, that we want, right? But inevitably, it not only gets our attention, but it also gets the attention of of others. Suffering has a way of reminding us that we aren't invincible, that we aren't really in control, and everyone will walk through the fire at some point in life. In his book, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis famously wrote this. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks in our conscience, but shouts In our pains, it is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. You see, people take notice when you walk through grief and you suffer. More oftentimes than not, the people around you especially take notice to the way that you respond to the pain that you're going through. Back in uh, 2009, I was diagnosed with uh, cancer. Now, I was newly married. I was just about 20 years old at the time, and this, to say the least, just completely blindsided me. It's Hodgkin's lymphoma, stage 2B. One of my friends who uh, uh, I'm very close to said, you know, Pat, he told me recently, he goes, you know, when I saw you for the very first time, I nearly broke down and cried. You see, at that point in time, my hair had kind of thinned out. I was frail and weak. I didn't really have a lot of energy, and... I just was sick all the time, and I looked myself in the mirror at that point in time, and I about cried as well. <laughs> he, he later told me, he goes, you look like a dead possum walking around. I was like, well, thanks for that. He always had a way with words. <laughs> but you know, one thing that became true very quickly is that people were starting to notice, and I was very humbled by a lot of the notes and emails that I would receive from people. And one thing that became very clear to me early on is that uh, people, when you go through suffering, sometimes don't know what to say, right? And so in an effort to say something, they usually end up saying something well-meaning but dumb or stupid. I had one lady come up to me one time and say, you know, I'm so sorry to hear that you have Hodgkin's lymphoma. That's actually the cancer that killed my dad. Thank you. Thanks for the encouragement, you know. And so in our effort to say something, we sometimes can say the wrong, we can say the wrong thing. And so let me ask you, what what is your suffering teaching you? What message are people seeing by the way that you're responding to your grief? Now I want to be clear here, okay? I am not saying that you need to fake it. I'm not saying that you need to tell people, oh, you're fine when you're not. I'm not saying that, you know, you you have to just put on a happy smile, put on some spray tan, and then have a good day, and everything is going to be just fine. No, that you don't have to have all the answers. Be raw, be honest. I know it can be awkward and uncomfortable, but don't sugarcoat your pain. One thing you may frequently hear in the midst of grief is something that sounds really good. It it sounds biblical, okay? I'll, I'll give you that. It sounds noble, but it's actually found nowhere in Scripture. 
It, it goes like this, and we've all heard it. We've all probably said it. It goes like this. Everything happens for a reason. Everything happens for a reason. More than likely, you've heard that or even said it before. And the implication of it is that God caused your grief. God caused your pain. He caused your, your suffering. But this phrase is found nowhere in the Bible. The implication of this statement is that God is really mad at you. He's punishing you for something, okay? And so he is al- he's allowing you to walk through this time of, of grief and suffering. Now, this false statement has twisted the words of Romans 8, 28, which says this, which is very different. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who were called according to his purpose. Now, Paul wrote this book too, okay? And what he doesn't say is that God causes everything to, to, to happen for a reason. No, he says that he works everything together for good. That's why it's important for us to know the difference between reason and purpose. Reason and purpose. Not, not everything happens for a specific reason, but what God does in his infinite ability to be in control and his infinite ability to love and his lavish mercy and grace is he takes our pain and he produces purpose from it. He allows it to be our platform for his glory. One time, Jesus' closest friends, they, they were walking along a road one day. They were walking through a village and and. They, they, they too believe that everything happens for a reason. And so they walk by this guy who is really sick and take a look at their question that they asked Jesus. And Jesus' response is John's biography about Jesus, John chapter 9. As he passed by, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, Jesus, they're saying, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Everything happens for a reason, Jesus, so what's the reason behind him being born blind? Notice how his followers automatically assumed that there was a reason for this man's blindness. They were desperate to identify a reason for it, but Jesus rocks their world with his response. Take a look at verse 3. Jesus then answered, It is not that this man sinned or his parents sinned, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Right here, Jesus declares, hey, there there was no reason behind his blindness. There was no reason behind the car wreck. There was no reason behind the, the cancer. There was no reason behind the divorce. There was no reason behind a child going off and leading an estranged life. It it wasn't the result of sin, Jesus says. It wasn't because his parents screwed up and didn't love God enough. It wasn't because he didn't have enough faith or, you know, he didn't pray more often. It wasn't because he didn't give enough to the local church or the local temple. Instead, Jesus responds by saying it's, it's actually none of those things. Although there was no reason for his suffering, he found purpose in his pain, which in turn became his platform. Let me say something to you. God is not punishing you. Our God isn't some distant cosmic force who's mad at you because of what you did in college or because of that one night stand that happened. He's not punishing you for it. It's not how God works. Every ounce of anger and wrath that God had towards you and me because of sin in our life was absorbed and paid for on the cross. There's a difference between reason and purpose. While there may not be a reason, we can find purpose in our pain. 
Let's skip down to verse 19 in our text. Paul continues to expand on this idea of his dark valley being his platform. He said, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that this will turn out for my deliverance. See the confidence and hope that he has? As it is my eager expectation and my hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, which by life or by death. For to me... To live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. In other words, I've got purpose here. I've got a mission to accomplish, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. I don't know what to do. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ. My desire, he's saying, is literally to die and be with you, Jesus, full-time. But For that is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account because I have a mission and a purpose to accomplish. Convinced of this, verse 25, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Now Paul was able to get to this place in his life where he equated his suffering with the trials that Jesus endured on his behalf. And you sense that as he wrote this, that he was experiencing the tension of wanting to live and, or wanting to die. He, he didn't know which one to choose. Either scenario, Paul in essence says, would be a gain. To die meant to be with Christ, but to live meant identifying with Christ and advancing the, the gospel. Somebody once said that Satan's pattern is glory, or is glory then suffering. God's pattern is just the opposite. It's suffering than glory. So here's the next thing I want us to, to note about pain. It goes like this. Suffering enables us to identify with Jesus. It enables us to identify with Jesus. The book of Isaiah, which is in the front half of the Bible, refers to Jesus as the man of sorrows. His life was literally defined by grief. We're told that he was rejected by his own family. All of his friends deserted him. He was put through a fixed, unfair trial. He died a criminal's death. And so what that tells us today is that there is nothing that we can experience that Jesus can't identify with. Let me put it like this. You can't outsuffer Jesus. I can't outsuffer Jesus. I want you to imagine with me for a moment that, uh, that you're a brand new parent. You've just welcomed a precious baby girl into your family. And as you're sitting there in the hospital room, you're just taking note of her tiny little hands, her tiny feet. You love the way that she looks up at you, her tiny little eyes, her little nose, and you can start to see yourself in her. Well, just then somebody walks into the hospital room and hands you a script of your daughter's life. And they give you a pencil because here's the deal. This script is every scenario, every circumstance that she is going to walk through in life. It's the script of her life. And what you can do with that pencil and that eraser is to delete or to take out any moment that you don't want her to experience. And so I have one daughter. If this is Vera for me, I would certainly take that pencil and I would have erased the pain that she felt when her mom and dad divorced. Suppose that she grew up a little bit more, and um, I see that in middle school she's made fun of by a friend. I would, I would take that moment out. 
She didn't get asked to the prom her junior and senior year. I would make sure that that's deleted as well. She goes off to college, and her best friend is tragically killed in a car accident. I wouldn't want her to experience that kind of loss, right? She gets engaged, and come to find out after a few months, her fiancé was unfaithful to her, so I would take that relationship out. I would delete that. I would erase it. Well, finally, she does marry somebody, and a few months after her wedding, she experiences a miscarriage. I wouldn't want her to go through that, so I would, I would delete that. I would, I would take that out. Now, I don't know about you, what you do with the script of someone that you love most, but isn't it our natural tendency to edit out all the parts that inflict pain and suffering? I mean, wouldn't you want to do away with every tear shed? Wouldn't you do your best to resolve every broken heart? I know I would. And yet by doing so, okay, by doing so, we actually rob them of the opportunity to identify with the one who loves them most, and that's Jesus. Whether we like it or not, whether we want it or not, suffering in all its various forms enables us to become like the one who is referred to as the man of sorrows. Jesus' life was defined by grief from start to finish, from beginning to end. And so that means two things for us today. Okay, number one, it's impossible to outsuffer Jesus. We've already said this. There's nothing that you endure, there's nothing that we experience that he hasn't first gone through. And the second thing is this there's no suffering that we experience that a resurrection can't fix. There's no suffering you experience that a resurrection can't fix. Our hope is that suffering doesn't have the final say because Jesus walked out of his grave and crashed his funeral. Paul reminds us of this in Romans. Take a look at what we read in chapter 8, verse 18. He said, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the for the." Creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together. In other words, Every ounce of creation is subjected to some form of death, decay, and suffering, and that is proof in itself that we were not made for this world, that we were made for something more. Even the trees know that. Even your dog knows that. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly. But as we know, there has to be more to life than just this, right? Grown inwardly, like, God, why did you let this happen? I'm going through somebody. I don't know if I can keep going. I don't know if, if he's even going to show up. And we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Paul's saying here, let me just translate it really quick. Suffering doesn't have the final say. Redemption wins. But until then, we're promised that grief is an inevitable component of this life. Skip down to verse 29 in our text. Paul says, For it is 
been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. What? Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Now, that word granted is is really an important word because it means to be given over to, to be subjected to, or to restore towards. Now, Paul is saying here that belief goes hand in hand with grief. Suffering for the sake of Jesus is one of the marks of a true believer. It's inevitable for everyone who is serious about faith. And so the last thing I want us to see goes like this. That suffering is a mark of true commitment. Suffering is a mark of of true commitment. You can't separate the two, Paul is saying here. They they go together. They go hand in hand. There's something about suffering, though, that refines our faith and causes us to assess just where we are with God. There has to be more to life. Grief has a way of causing us to ask those important questions. Grief reminds us that giving our lives to Jesus doesn't guarantee us all that life will be a walk in the park. It's it's a gut check. A friend and a mentor of mine, her name is Cassie. She was married for 54 years to her husband, George, before he passed away about five years ago. About 10 years or so into their marriage, her husband fell in love with Cassie's best friend. And even though they had six kids at home, he decided he wanted out. And so he got his things together and he moved out. But Cassie, my friend, refused to give up on George. She, she loved him in the midst of his rebellion. George would go on to move in and out of their home nine different times. He had filed for divorce twice, and during that time, Cassie was ostracized. She was criticized. How could you keep taking him back? She was told by countless Christians to divorce George, to give up. Even her own kids questioned her sanity. And You see, as much as Cassie was committed to George. Her commitment to Jesus was even greater. You see, when all of this unfolded, Cassie was a baby Christian and knew in her understanding of the lavish mercy, grace, and forgiveness that she's been given because of the deal Jesus had given her. So she just refused to give up. In spite of being misunderstood, In spite of losing relationships, in spite of the emotional toll it took on her to keep accepting George back, she she didn't quit. After four and a half years, George finally got it. And because he had a wife who emulated Jesus to him when he didn't deserve it. One time, George and Cassie were speaking at a local, local church, and George said, you know, the most amazing part of our story is when I decided to finally end the affair once and for all, and I moved back in with my family for that final time, never once did Cassie hold it against me. Never once did she remind me of what I had done. And you may be thinking, you know what, good for her. That's an inspiring story, Patrick, but that can never happen with me. It can never happen with us. Cassie just sounds like some super Christian, and the truth is, if she were here today, she would just tell you she just refused to take her eyes off Jesus. 
And let me just say, I know some of you are in marriages that leave you feeling alone and lost. And while God calls us to remain faithful in good times and bad, there are some in the church today advocating that people stay in relationships that are flat out abusive and dangerous. Now, faithfulness amid suffering is not the same thing as suffering and abuse. Right, Jesus told us to, to love our neighbors. And here's the part that we often overlook when he says, love your neighbor. He says, as yourself. You're called to love yourself. And for some of you, that means love yourself enough to remove yourself from an abusive scenario so that the relationship can breathe and that reconciliation can hopefully happen. Jesus does not advocate for anyone to stay in a relationship that is physically dangerous. And so let me just advise you, get counseling, seek help, do your best, keep praying, surround yourself with friends who will love you no matter what and, and do all you can to not give up. But don't feel guilty if it is dangerous for you and your kids, if you need to evacuate that scenario. I want to end with some questions. I just want us to process what we've learned and what we've seen today. First question is this, when you suffer, what do people see? When you go through grief, how do you respond? Do they see Joy or do they see misery? Do, do you constantly portray yourself as the victim or do people see joy in you? Do they see hope or do they see hopelessness? Here's the second question. Are you willing to count the cost? Are you willing to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus let me ask you it like this. What's the one thing that you aren't willing to part with if Jesus asked you to give it up? What, what are you hanging on to so tightly that you tell God, this, this is off limits? Is it your career? Is it your identity? Is it, is it pride? Is it maybe something more practical? Is it a hobby? How much criticism are you willing to endure for the sake of following Jesus closely? Are you, are you willing to give up your job? Are you willing to give up your career are you willing to give up your reputation? Are you willing to count the cost? And here's the last question. What does it look like for you to not give up? What does it look like for you to not give up? I'm gonna pass out some advice today. I don't know who you've lost. I don't know what you've lost. I don't know what you're going through right now, and I'll be honest, I have no idea, I have no idea how you're going to make it. And someone who has suffered at different points in his life, what I want to tell you is don't give up. Can you, can you keep going? Just, can you take just one more step, one more day, one more afternoon, one more breath? You see, our hope is that there's no amount of suffering that a resurrection can't fix. And one day, what Jesus is going to do is he's going to wipe away every tear from our eye, every ounce of grief and darkness will in an instant become untrue. From an eternal perspective, the suffering that we experience in this life will just seem like one bad night in a bad hotel. So we're going to end with a song. I'm going to end with an invitation. There's three invitations on the table for you today. And I just want you to know, when you're ready, we're ready. I don't know what next step you need to take in your life with Jesus, but maybe you need to say yes to Jesus. 
Maybe you need to decide today to become a Christian, to follow Jesus, to put him first in your life. You don't have to have all the answers. You've got a lot of questions. You don't know what the implications are going to be for this or that. Look, it's all good. But is Jesus just calling you to take one step closer to him? Is today the day that you start living with that eternal hope that no suffering can touch? Are you going to say yes to Jesus? The second, second question is maybe you've made that decision in the past, but you've never followed through with baptism. Baptism is simply a public declaration that you and Jesus are one. You're on the same team now. And maybe you were sprinkled as a baby in the Catholic Church, Methodist Church, Presbyterian Church. That's great. You know why your parents did that? By the way, I was a part of that club too. I was sprinkled as a baby in the Catholic Church, and I'm incredibly grateful for that moment in my life, even though I was only like three months old, because that was my parents' way of saying, hey, we want our son to grow up to know and love and serve Jesus. But you know what? About 10 years later, I had to make a decision for myself to be baptized myself, to choose Jesus for myself, because your parents, as well-meaning as they were, they can't, choose to fo- they can't choose for you to follow Jesus. It's a decision you must make. So if you were sprinkled as a child and you don't even remember it, maybe today's the day that you decide to put a stake in the ground, a line in the sand, and you choose to be baptized because this is your decision. This is you owning your faith. All right, maybe you've been coming to Adventure for quite some time and you're ready to make this place your church home. You're ready to join. You're ready to dive in and be a part of this family. If that's your decision today, uh, I want to invite you to come forward either Whether you're saying yes to Jesus' baptism or you're joining the church, I want you to come forward. Brad will be up here. I'll be on this side. And uh, we're, we're ready when you're ready. All right? Let me pray. Jesus, I know a message like this lands pretty hard on many of us because of what we've experienced. And a lot of us may walk out of here with more questions than answers. And And I know some of us are are ready to quit, ready to throw in the towel. We've had enough. We've endured enough. God, would would you grant us the grace to take one more breath, to live one more day, to keep fighting? Would you help us to find purpose in our pain? And And would you just remind us that no suffering we experience that you can't identify with. We thank you, Jesus, that when we approach you, we approach you knowing that you literally went through hell for us. You went through the valley of the shadow of death. You went through darkness. There's no pain we can bring to you that you can't identify with. We thank you for that. Help us as a church family to come alongside those who are having a difficult time. May they know they're not alone. We don't have to do this thing called life all by ourselves. So Jesus, it's in your name I pray. Amen.
second hour after uh, today because uh, it's fifth Sunday that's like a church thing you know fifth Sunday like no one else in the world pays attention to that but we do because we're church so um, have fun go grab some lunch with your family whatever uh, we love you thanks for worshiping with us and we'll see you next week <laughs>